Before today's episode of Punching Out gets underway, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the fine folks at Wayo who have made this show possible over the past several years now. From now until the end of the week, if you go to donate.wayofm.org, you can help those fine people keep Wayo on the air for another year to come, another year beyond that, well into the future. As a bonus, if you become a Wayo member, you can get yourself discounts to local businesses across Rochester, and for additional money, some sweet merchandise, bumper stickers, hats, a cool windbreaker. It's all very good. It helps punching out. It helps the dozens of other independent programs that air on Wayo every week. You'll be doing the world a favor. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. Every week we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work. Whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking about some media layoffs that have been taking place in recent months. Um, In this first segment, we're going to be focusing on Gannett, which is the largest holder of newspapers in the United States. Uh, In Rochester, they own the Democratic Chronicle. They own the USA Today. They're a big player on a local media scene that, uh, as we've discussed in the past on Punching Out, has gotten a lot smaller in recent years. Uh, the last couple decades have not been kind to the newspaper industry. And as we've talked about, the newspaper industry has not been kind to the people who made it run. I guess the place to start this off um, is the news from August that Gannett would be laying off a several hundred employees and cutting open positions following some earnings reports that were not uh, sufficient enough for the owners of Gannett. That amounts to about 3% of its workforce, but it also continues a long trend of Gannett downsizing its workforce across the country. And that's all bad, right? Can confirm is bad. It's only bad if you like having information about what's going on in the world around you, which increasingly I'm not convinced that a lot of Americans actually like that. So, you know, we might be in the minority here in thinking that it is actually a bad thing. But, okay, snarking aside, it absolutely is. You've got 400 journalists and other positions, to be fair. Not all of them were reporting or editorial in nature losing their jobs, and especially so in small and medium newspapers, which are particularly vulnerable to this kind of thing. Um, those have been those were already pretty much gutted before Gannett owned everything. And now that uh, you know we we talked about this when we talked about private equity capital, 
that they would come in, they would buy a newspaper, even if it was profitable, load it up with debt, force it to do this, and then uh, basically leave the, the scraps behind the two or three journalists who might be left to do everything there, which makes it impossible to do good journalism. And the the only response that there's been to all of this is perhaps people should just subscribe more, which, yeah, not 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 really an adequate stopgap. Right. Yeah, they're effectively trying to squeeze more money out of the people who make use of it in the hopes of that shoring up, you know, the other financial problems that are facing the industry. Obviously, a lot has changed in the last two decades that has ostensibly been the cause for this decline of newspapers. You you can point to Facebook, you can point to Twitter, a company that we might be discussing a little bit later on in this show. You can point to reasons why you might expect that newspapers have struggled. And at the same time, you can also point to decisions made by the newspaper industry by companies like Gannett to not invest in local news as not helping matters. It's been a real vicious cycle in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's, you know, I have a coworker who talks or, or talks frequently about the decline of the Rochester newspaper and how she gets the Buffalo paper now, which I think is a, a Warren Buffett joint, um, the Buffalo paper or whatever company he owns, owns the Buffalo news. Um, and she said that, you know, back in the day, she would be able to get, uh, a full paper that had local news, sports, national news, um, special interests, arts, whatever, like the things that you think and associate with a newspaper. And over the years, it keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And Gannett and other media companies do this thing where they, uh, Exactly as you said, Ryan, like they keep cutting and making cuts and that only makes the product worse and less likely for people to actually subscribe to it. Like, why would I spend a buck, whatever, or two bucks, three bucks, whatever the cost is of the, the Rochester newspaper when I'm getting articles from USA Today, which is Gannett. I'm getting those articles. I'm not getting anything actually specific to Rochester. And it's like, why, why would you spend the money? But then they're like, oh, well, it's not profitable. We're going to cut it more. So maybe there's like five people working in the Gannett office in Rochester now. Maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, but I know that every single, every few years, they keep making more cuts because it's not profitable. Some things aren't meant to be profitable. Sorry. Yeah. As somebody who used to read the Democratic Chronicle on a regular basis when I lived in Rochester, seeing it dwindle over the years was a real bummer. It went from something that was fully fleshed out and would have stories on you know, local government and X, Y, and Z happening around Rochester to you know, a front page, an opinion page, and the New York Times crossword puzzle. Um, I now live in New York, and while I'm sure the New York Times has had its troubles, it hasn't faced the same challenges as local media has in this country. Part of the trend of the decline of local papers has been this sort of concentration of media attention and media jobs in a few main markets, markets like New York 
uh, if you're reporting on tech, you might have an outlet in San Francisco. But, you know, as you described, Lou, it's a lot of national news covering coming from Gannett's other outlets that are now filling the pages of the Democrat and Chronicle. And there's not a lot of resources being put into bringing out local stories. You're not seeing the things that are of interest to people who live in Rochester. Which is kind of a problem because that's where good journalism can make the biggest difference. One of the reasons why Gannett and uh, it merged with Gatehouse a few years ago, I, I remember that because uh, I had a coworker who went to work for them before, just before that happened. Um, they are slowly taking over larger and larger markets. I don't remember if they're, I don't remember if Gannett or Alden is responsible for the plane dealer in Cleveland, but uh, places like Cleveland and Denver. And I mean, we remember everything with um, uh, the Chicago Tronk, the Chicago thing, <laughs> yes, which gosh, very funny Tronk. and everything. But like even the sec, even what used to be called the second city of the country, right? Can't make um is is not immune to its media being hollowed out and sold for scrap. And when you have that, especially given you know how much money is going to be moving through these cities, how much uh, local developers affect urban politics in this country, the fact that there's nobody in charge of being a watchdog, that it all falls to people with like, you know, if you're lucky, maybe there's a local person who goes to every city council meeting and has a Patreon to take notes. When that's what you've got, that is, it is not humanly possible to do the work of holding government accountable. And I'm not a romantic about this. I know that that's not why newspapers were founded in the United States anyway, but that is, there has to be a function for that. There has to be a way for people to get accurate information on what's going on around them. And instead, what we have now is whatever Mike Reed wants you to see, uh, you know, reprinted from the U- from USA Today. Yeah, and there's a lot that I, I think you can trace a lot of our sort of discourse to this hollowing out of local media because what happens in the absence of well-funded journalism in cities like Rochester it's not as you described that people just don't want information on the outside world it's that they go to different places for that information they go to oftentimes less reliable outlets but also they go to national outlets and you've seen this sort of nationalization in scope of a lot of local politics, you know, races are run on effectively against Nancy Pelosi or against uh, the January six rioters. When in the past they might have focused on what politicians are actually doing for the local area. So everything is hyper federal in a way that I don't think was the case even just 10, 15 years ago. Um, And that, really shifts how the national discourse happens and how politics happens. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, you know, we've talked before on this show too, about the uh, consolidation of local TV news. 
and that impact and how it's one guy with a very right wing agenda. Um, can't remember the guy's name. Sorry. Uh, who owns a lot of uh, network televisions. And he like requires you to say these really absurd outlandish things about crime rates and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's one national narrative that is driving local discourse, which if we lived in a democracy really should be the other way around where what affects you locally should be heard on a national scale. And that's, that's not the case. We, we view everything through the lens of the narrative of the libs versus the Trumpites or or right versus left. And that's the only lens that we can view anything anymore through. And are you a good guy or a bad guy? Like it, it, it's very, it's a narrative. Because of how the uh, media landscape has shifted, there are people who now know more about what's going on in New York city than they do about what's going on five streets down in their own city. I mean, there's no shortage of attention that gets placed on, you know, X, Y, and Z crime incident happening in New York, whereas the same story happening somewhere else gets entirely overlooked because there's not like a tabloid newspaper dedicated to uh, sensationalizing those events if they happen in Rochester. And the end effect is that like people's uh, understanding of the world around them is much worse, which It's probably bad, I'm assuming. And let me tell you that from the educational side of things, because I'm a teacher. No way. 13 minutes. Thank you. It's even worse. (laughs) There's no real attempt to teach real media literacy anymore. That just doesn't exist. There's an attempt to teach like production skills, you know? sound editing, Photoshop, that kind of thing, learning how to use, I don't know, Final Cut, that that sort of deal. Would have been useful for me as the producer of a radio show, but well, I there missed out on it. But instead, what we have right now is th- there's no attempt to like give people, especially uh, students, the tools to interpret the information that they're getting. In a lot of cases, this is because schools don't have the resources to pay for them in cases like mine with a school that does have the resources it's because parents don't want their kids questioning what they're getting they want they're perfectly fine with their kids getting an algorithmic slop of right-wing talking points beamed at them all day because that's what they believe and they don't want their kids believing anything different and i guess i'm actually not gonna be uh, i said snarking aside in the last one but the fact is that even before all of this media stuff happened, when I moved up here in the late 2000s, it genuinely seemed like most people were completely uninterested in an informed view of the world. And we go out of our way to excuse that in each other. We go out of our way to say, well, it's not people's fault that they don't know what's actually happening. It's not people's fault that they can't distinguish fact from fiction. It's not people's fault Sorry, pardon me. I've been sick all week and, and it's finally coming out there. It's it's not people's fault that they get all of their news from one source. But frankly, it is. Frankly, at some point, we need to have higher standards for people. 
It is really, really annoying to watch people talk about their grandparents or, you know, racist relatives that they have or whatever and say, well, you know, it sucks because all they do is watch Fox News or One America or whatever all day. Well, I, I get that that sucks for you because you can't do anything about it. But also that is their own fault. They are ultimately choosing to completely leave every other worldview out of there. There may be systemic forces behind that, but ultimately the fact is that we don't ask people to make better choices in this regard and that we don't teach the future generations of America to be able to do that either. So we're just going to end up, I, I, I think a lot about this because every year you get, uh, you know, your the reading level you're supposed to make everything for goes down a grade. Every year, there's less and less that you're allowed to ask of students, of people in general. And at this point, it's frankly pathetic that a country that still talks about how rich it is and how strong its economy is and how wonderful its people are, pardon me again, cannot get it together in this regard. This is not a novel point, but it has been uh, pointed out time and time again that... uh... If you go to the New York Times for coverage on any given news event, you're likely to be greeted by a paywall. You're not going to be able to actually read that article because you've already been to the site once this month and you don't get to read it again before you pay for a subscription. And there are ways around that. Uh, I'm very familiar with them. But a lot of people are not going to put in the effort to go to archive.org and... uh, you know, get around the paywall. Whereas if you go to any number of right-wing outlets who are funded by billionaires who are fine losing money in order to serve their ideological agenda that will save them money in the long run, they're not going to hit a paywall. You're going to get, you know, something about that news event you were looking for. And is it true? Is it false? It's probably false. When you don't have you know, reliable local outlets when you don't have journalists on the ground who are producing not just coverage, but accessible coverage, coverage that people can read without having to pay five bucks a month or whatever the cost may be, you're going to see issues because people ultimately are going to go to the lowest common denominator. They're going to make the cheapest choice. They're going to make the cheapest choice, but they're also going to make the one that fits within what they're already comfortable with and their expectations. So, sure, you can read a ProPublica article that says, actually, this thing is happening instead, or, or a New York Times article that says this is a more or less objective truth. Um, not that the New York Times is great about that, let's be honest. Uh, but if you want like people are want to be comfortable they want to they don't want to be challenged constantly so they're gonna read something that's already fitting in with what they perceive about reality whether or not it's true which is how you can get the speaker of the house her husband you know attacked and people decide oh no that was a false flag operation why like that was a bizarre twist but it fit within what they were already comfortable to hear. That example is particularly ironic because 
it happened to the Speaker of the House's husband. So there is extensive coverage of everything. So you can't say it's not like there aren't eyes and hands on it, but it doesn't matter. And I just, I swear I'm not trying to turn this into a referendum on the American people's ability to like learn new things. But at the same time, it it's really depressing because it doesn't seem like there is any kind of solution in view because the way newspapers used to work is that they sold advertising and subscription fees and that kind of thing. And then ideally, if they did good journalism and attracted enough local advertising, then they stayed solvent and they could employ journalists to do good work and so on. And everybody kind of agreed that that was a good idea because well, because then people saw your business and, you know, like there was a symbiotic relationship there. And then in the age of the, in, in the age, in the digital age, we've seen venture capitalists and private equity take advantage of the fact that now there's so many other sources of information to sort of make that, to sort of enter that relationship and say, Instead, we're going to give you or we're going to give you just enough money to run a skeleton crew operation so that we can say we're not shuttering newspapers and that we care about local media, but we're not actually going to let them do anything. We're just going to have the name on what is otherwise an empty building. And I I don't know how you solve that is the thing. There, there are things out there that could do it, but... I don't know if they would work with the media landscape and the public that we have. And that I think is, is what's really um, saddening more than anything. Well, you don't have to solve it till segment three. So (laughs) thank God got a whole 40 minutes. It's also worth acknowledging that in this uh, digital age, we've seen and discussed in the past how like, Facebook siphoned off a lot of that ad revenue instead of people seeing it on seeing an article on the newspaper's website. They saw it first on the newspaper's Facebook page and the ad they saw next to it was ad money that went to Facebook and not to the newspaper. You know, they were able to see a headline and not click on it and not get the full story, give no money to the newspaper effectively. And Facebook lived off of skimming off the top like that yeah facebook google a lot of organizations did that and yeah they they definitely played a huge role like it it cannot be understated how much the rise of facebook and google and these algorithms played in in the death knell of media and also we need to talk about the fact that the whole reason those videos became a thing is because Facebook knowingly straightforwardly lied to papers of every stripe to create the case that they should all pivot to video, which is how we now have a media establishment. And again, an educational establishment in which the written word basically doesn't exist. Everything has to be visual. If you're writing, it's like subtitles to a talking head. And copy editing has completely gone away. There's, you know, I don't mean to be nitpicky, but when you see spelling errors and bad grammar and stuff like that on the front page of a newspaper, you take notice. 
And so those little things they've been eating away at, and they've been replacing so much of it with appealing to the the shortest attention span possible, the most like visually obsessed part of everything possible. It all has to be infographics. It all has to be videos. It all has to be interviews. It can't just be good old-fashioned writing. And I know I sound like a boomer saying that, but the fact is that there were benefits to that form of media too. And not all, again, not only are we getting rid of that, but then we're also training the next few generations to be unable to handle it. Now, I say this as, you know, an old millennial. Uh, I am not a Gen Zer, so you, our senior teen correspondent, would know more about this than me. But for my part, like, I prefer having an article instead of a video. And I think I speak for a lot of people in saying that. There are a lot more situations where the article is just going to fit into my life better and better describe what's happening than a video. Uh, I, I think the famous example is that everything that happens on 30 minutes of the nightly news on TV is can fit within the front page of a newspaper because you can just convey a lot more information and a lot less space when it's written down. Um, and there are any number of situations where like I'm at work and I can't watch a video, but I could read an article, just endless advantages to the written word as a consumer. These decisions were not made by consumers. Like we said, they were made by Facebook executives manipulating the numbers and trying to get people to use their platform in the end. All of this, again, being bad if you're somebody who wants like a reliable account of the news. And speaking of bad things for people who want reliable accounts of the news, we're going to talk in the next segment about the things going on at Twitter.com. We'll be back. Hi, this is Ryan, Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. From Punching Out. We've been airing on Wayo for four years now and want you to know that everything the station does is only possible through a lot of volunteer labor and the support of listeners like you. So from now until November 12th, you can go to donate.wayofm, that's W-A-Y-O-F-M.org, and help keep us and the 80 other shows that air on Wayo each week going for years to come. Donors and Wayo members get cool perks like t-shirts, discounts, at local businesses, and more. So go to donate.wayofm.org to support your favorite community radio station. Thanks. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. In our first segment today, we talked uh, again about the layoffs happening in the media industry, specifically at local newspapers owned by Gannett. Um, and we talked about the effect that's had on people's media diets, on the quality of the information that reaches their eyeballs and that they consume in a given day. And we talked about Facebook's impact on all that. And now it's time to talk about Twitter, a, another outlet that uh, has had some layoffs in the news. Um, if you are blessedly unaware of Twitter, it has recently been purchased by the richest man in the world, Elon Musk. And he's rapidly seeking to remake the site in his own image. Uh, 
one of his first moves being to lay off half of the staff at the site. There's a lot that to where are we going to start here? Um, we could start just about anywhere. I, I, my personal favorite anecdote about the whole situation is that he had to be forced to buy the company after he did a weed joke about, um, Oh yeah, I'm going to buy it at this much per share. And then had to be forced to buy that after he tried to pull out of the deal. Um, that to me is very funny. Uh, perhaps not good for Twitter in general, but I think the um, Twitter board rightly decided that they were going to get paid and get out um, before he lit the whole place on fire, which he did like, in a within a week, he absolute dumpster fire going on right now. It's pretty impressive. Uh, so we could start there. We could talk about how his first day he decided he was going to bring a sink into the office and be like, let that sink in. <laughs> He's, Dumbest oh, that's what that planet. was. I saw the references, but I didn't know he literally brought. He literally brought a sink, and I don't. It wasn't like a kitchen sink; it was like a bathroom sink you could buy at a hardware store. Uh, the man is so stupid. Um, he he. So he did that. He then, like the next day or within forty-eight hours, said, "Now you're going to have to pay me twenty dollars a month to be verified." And then a bunch of people were like, "Absolutely not," and. They said, okay, well, how about $8 a month? <laughs> and that's the number they're at now. He did that. He fired the CFO, the, the head of legal, the CEO. He dissolved the board. Oh, what else has he done? He then started firing everyone for cause or without. Uh, said, oh, yeah, by the way, the verification thing that you're paying 20 nope, sorry, $8 a month for you now has to be done within a week or you're going to get fired. Like. The man is nuts. It's very funny. <laughs> it's very funny. Let me let me see if I can think of anything you may have missed. Um, he sorted. He asked engineers to print out yes. all the code that they had worked on, uh, which was such a stupid move and exposed the company to so much sabotage that they were then forced to shred it. He has kept no records of who got fired or laid off. So basically in every project channel, they're all scrambling to find out who's even still there. Oh, because he also sorted the engineers by how yeah. many lines of code they wrote, because that's how you know when somebody's a good programmer, when they write tons of code. I have found this out repeatedly from several Elon Musk defenders on Twitter that more code is better code. That's very interesting to me, but there we are. Then there's, let's see, the verification thing did launch today, by the way. Oh, it did. But it doesn't give you a check mark. Huh. So, so several, the, so there's a bunch of like QAnon types signing up for it and then complaining that they're not getting a check mark for their money. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, and let's see, he, we should also be clear that the apparent flashpoint for lowering the price from 20 to 8 was that Stephen King specifically, which is a very, admittedly, very Elon Musk author to have managed this feat, said he wouldn't pay those 20 bucks for content that he generates for free. Elon, Elon begged him, would you take 8? Because okay, I'm betting you Elon has a shelf of nothing but Stephen King books, um, which is going to be read as a slam on Stephen King and maybe sometimes a deserved one. But either way, the point is 
just wire to wire mismanagement, horrible move after horrible move, necessitated by how he structured the purchase of the company. Because it's not like Elon Musk showed up to Twitter headquarters with $44 billion in cash and said, I own you now. A bunch of banks lent him some of that money, and they're all admitting right now that they're going to have to take giant haircuts on the money that they gave him to do it. Basically, everyone, including Elon Musk so far, is coming out of this not at all ahead. And he's been reduced to scrambling in front of like investment forums and saying things like, well, you know, uh, once we get everybody verified, the only people who are unverified will be the bots. So we're going to prioritize verified replies, mentions, all that. So you'll have to scroll very far before you see the unverified people kind of thing. The unverified. It's, uh, yeah. It, it's pretty... Who? And while a lot of this can sound like internet forum drama to a certain extent, Twitter due to its size and sort of place in the discourse has like real world effects, right? Ostensibly the purpose of the blue check marks, the famous blue check marks on Twitter has been to prove that this is actually the person behind the account. That's been why they've been implemented. And that's a purpose that is, defeated by the new system of using the blue check mark as a tool for generating revenue. That's a purpose that goes entirely out the window when anybody can pay $8 to get the blue check mark to get verified. The new way of doing things seems uh, incredibly vulnerable to exploitation, either by people just doing jokes or people with malicious intent behind their jokes and their japes. I just, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I just, I just want to remind everybody that the whole reason we even have verification as a thing on Twitter is because no longer White Sox manager Tony Larusa sued somebody pretending to be him. Is that is that really what happened? If I remember correctly, that is how we ended up with uh, check marks. Yes. <laughs> The fact that Tony LaRussa knows what a computer is, let alone <laughs> sued somebody for doing something on Twitter, is already the most amazing part of this whole saga. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And so Twitter already had a reputation for kind of being a really scummy place, to be honest. Like, this is where you went if you... <laughs> Uh, didn't respect no yourself. Social- yeah, didn't respect yourself. It's a, to use a cliche, a hive of villainy. And a lot of conspiracy theories and uh, mis-, mis and disinformation spread very quickly via Twitter. And it was only through a lot of work that you got content moderation, which we've talked about on the show as being inadequate um, to, to the raging inferno of dis and misinformation out there um, on Facebook and Twitter and basically anywhere where media is consumed. Well, we've also talked about like the impact of that work on the people who do it. Sure. it. It is not easy work. You know, it's a lot of going through hate speech and illegal content and, you know, things that if you see enough of it in a day will ruin your day. Yeah. And to lay off 
you know, 50% or more of the people doing that work means that it doesn't mean that the work goes away. It means that it is done by fewer people and they will have to do more of it or they won't do as much of it. And the website will see and, you know, all the things that they had Mm -hmm. done a decent job of preventing in the past. And publicly, Musk has done the, you know, I'm not touching you sort of uh, troll where he tries to have things both ways. He has posed before the takeover took place as, you know, a warrior for free speech. You know, he simply wanted everybody to have a say. He simply wanted the end of censorship and the end of banning and the end of all of Twitter's rules effectively that limited what people could say. And since taking over, he has had to deal with the reality of advertisers don't want that website. Advertisers don't want the wild West to be right next to their burger ad. You know, they want a place that is relatively tame that they aren't going to get a news cycle on about being on. So he's trying to have it both ways as Musk. He's trying to maintain that pose, the one that gained him, you know, any number of internet fanboys of, you know, Oh yeah, I really like free speech and you should be able to say whatever while also backtracking effectively that those statements now that he has, you know, $44 billion to make back. Well, I heard something. I don't know if this is true or not, because honestly, I haven't looked that hard, but I've heard he's already offloaded that debt onto Twitter. So it's not his personal debt. It's Twitter's debt now. Um, As we discussed in the last segment, uh, offloading your debt onto the company you buy, uh, very useful if you're the person with the debt, but not good news for the company, typically. Yeah. Doesn't bode well for the long-term future. Yeah, it really doesn't. And you know, advertisers have already pulled out. They didn't like Twitter that much to begin with because it is hell on earth. Like <laughs> that's, that's the appeal. Um, but not enough can be said about the fact that he has spent his entire adulthood shielded from consequences. Uh, as far as Tesla is concerned, People buy that stock because of his celebrity and because of the cult of personality that follows him. So the fact that I think I'm pretty sure I I saw that there's a criminal probe now into Tesla autopilot. Uh, Like all of these things are finally coming home. Tesla stock is is falling. Um, I don't know because he's offloaded this debt. I don't know that he'll actually suffer any consequences from um this purchase uh we all will because he m- seems to escape trouble all of the time somehow the only the the closest thing to not escaping trouble he's ever accomplished is having to buy twitter in the first place because again he was forced to buy twitter twitter sued him and said no you said you were paying us 44 billion dollars when we're worth like 10 so pay up dude <sighs> he he's A crafty creature. Especially considering that, again, it's not like he had $44 billion sitting around that he just used on this purchase. Like, a lot of that money came from other people. 
some of whom you would hope would be kind of furious about this. And I'm sure some of them also wanted to see Twitter kind of go down in flames because for all that we've said that's negative about it and that is very accurate, it also was one of the few places where you could kind of, as a journalist or because of the downfall of local media, it was one of the few places where you could disseminate information quickly in a way that would eventually trickle down to, you know, regular old people kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it allowed for artists and scientists and people like that to link up. It allowed for people to warn uh, about things like sweeps of homeless encampments and things like that and raise actions for that kind of thing. And there are alternatives to that. I'm not saying that there aren't, but it allowed you to do all of that from one place. And I'm sure that a lot of these people financing the purchase also want all of that gone. But they're also taking a giant hit to their finances. And now, unless every single Tesla shareholder is the exact kind of idiot that defends Elon Musk from everything, they should also be mad because he's now pulling Tesla workforce to work at Twitter, which is a thing you are actually not allowed to do. You're not allowed to take workforce from a public company and reassign it to your personal project. It uh, conflicts with your fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders. So if they wanted to, they could theoretically mount a revolt on that, and that could hurt him even worse, but they're probably not going to because they're the kind of weird nerds that consider owning a Tesla to be part of your personal identity. And so... You know, what, what are they going to be able to do? What It would go against everything that they know and believe in. But that seems to be about the only thing that will hurt him. There's uh, currently a class action lawsuit in California, and there may eventually be one in New York because Musk failed to give proper notice under the laws in those states of the mass layoffs. But in California, at least, the amount of pay he's giving them, the two months, is the exact penalty that he'd pay if he lost that lawsuit. And he's actually giving them, I think it's three months of pay, of severance or whatever it is. And that would also meet the New York law's requirement that it has to be 90 days in advance. So he's very carefully structured this so that he's already paid, theoretically, the penalties associated with these two lawsuits. And because in this country, we refuse to make laws that hurt rich people ever, that's going to be good enough. So... The only people that can take him down are his own shareholders and the Irish, because there are Twitter offices in Ireland, and they do have stronger laws about employment. And half of them got laid off, too, apparently. We love it. There'd be a cruel irony in the company who you place the headquarters in to get around tax laws, ending up hurting you because of their labor laws. Um that's but, amazing. Um, I love that. I had, yeah, law that's Twitter. <laughs> now, Twitter is a site that I started using in college and I've used probably every day since. And that's done irreparable damage to the way I think. But we're not just discussing this because it happens to be our site of choice, but it is a labor story at the end of the day that all of these people, thousands of people are losing their jobs. And in such short notice and in such odd fashion, right? There's a article on Platformer by Casey Newton and Zoe Schiffer about 
the fallout within Twitter offices of Musk's arrival on the scene and his prompt decision to dismiss half the people on the scene. Um, Officially, a lot of the people who have been laid off still have their jobs through January. They just aren't allowed to do anything at them. They're, you know, in order to meet the requirements of California law, which requires, uh, according to the Department of Labor, businesses with more than 100 full-time employees are required to give 60 days notice if they lay off 33% or more of the staff. There's these workarounds that, as Noah, you mentioned, and Lou, you as well, Musk has found in order to stay in compliance with the law, but nevertheless, that doesn't make it any better as an action for the world's richest man to take. Quoting from the article on Platformer, employees remaining at the company who have been working remotely are already being asked to return to the office on short timeframes, as little as two weeks, we're told, even if it would require a long distance move. Uh, This is something we've talked about recently uh, in terms of companies pressuring their employees back into the office. Uh, Musk famously had his uh, workers at Tesla working through the pandemic and uh, probably in violation of California law at the time, but the law and enforcement, two different things. I'm running out of breath. Uh, What can we say about this? We've been training five years for this story, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's before Noah started talking about it. Think, speaking of other things that uh, Musk has done that is outside the law is, yeah, the, the layoffs. And like everybody was expecting layoffs, but I don't think they were expecting them in the first week. I don't think they were expecting not to even know who would be working at the company after they, they did that. Um it's a managed by chaos thing and like a managed by Russian roulettes to the point that you have to assume that Musk is doing everything in his power to crash the site as quickly as possible so that, you know, maybe he's got an insurance claim on it or something, uh, which I don't, could you do that? Is that a legal thing? Is that a thing you could do? It doesn't seem legal. Yeah. Well, I, I think it has to be noted that for a lot of Musk's uh, right-wing online fan base, there's a certain glee that's being taken in the very act of punishing Twitter employees. Twitter employees are, you know, rich Californian elites who are censoring real conservative voices, and therefore, you know, by laying them off, Musk is doing a form of justice. He is doing you know, a great deed in their minds. That's a silly way to view the world, but it is the way in which they view the world. It's definitely how they view the world. And like they are seeing Twitter being taken over by Musk as a a way to force people to listen to them. So before they'd been chased off to other platforms like Gab and whatever, which then get deplatformed. But now they're, they're, and then that's one of the uh, theories behind forcing paying for verification um, to prioritize your message over anybody else's is that it would force people to listen to you when they otherwise don't want to hear from you at all. And at this point, given uh, the work Musk is Musk himself is doing the work of trying to alienate a lot of the site's users by painting them as, you know, 
Starbucks barista elitists, uh, you know, people with one too many hair colors. Uh, he's, you know, inevitably the people who pay for verification on Twitter are going to be people who want to express support for Musk and this project. You're going to see a verification of people who are, well, not proportionate to Twitter's user base as it stands, but proportionate to Musk's fan base instead. So you'll see the elevation of QAnon cranks and right-wing trolls at the expense of uh, reporters and the sorts of people who are verified in the past, effectively. It's all going to, you know, this is effectively an ideological project. This is, I talked in the last segment about billionaires willing to lose money on right-wing media because it serves their policy goals. Musk too has policy goals. He wants to let right-wing politicians not be shadow banned in exchange for them letting his companies exploit their workers. That's a trade he's making in this. There's, to the extent he has thought this through, that seems like a reasonable thought process for him to have. The thing is that I think that's what a lot of the other financiers behind this purchase are thinking, but it seems so patently obvious that what's behind Musk's part of this is that not only do his supporters want you to force you uh, want to force you to listen to them, but he cannot deal with the fact that he is a profoundly incurious unfunny person who wants nothing he is more so unfunny he is literally everything he has ever said that has any comedic value came from somebody else and he cannot deal with the fact that all the riches in the world and all the weird internet fanboys in the world cannot guarantee you respect that is what's moving him more than anything like i fully believe that all of these other banks and billionaires that that are involved in this process that that is exactly what they want the policy goals but honestly i really do think for musk this is a personal thing you see it when he talks about prioritizing replies you see it when he talks about the idea part of me that you would have to scroll so far to see the unverified even if they're people you follow and that kind of thing, the idea that he's going to create multiple classes of users. This is a man who is obsessed with the fact that he is not the king of the hill when it comes to like social prestige. And he doesn't get why that's not true because, well, frankly, if, if I'm going to be honest, because we spent the past four years saying that Trump was a born poster and freaking incredible at it. And Musk thinks he's the same kind of person. And in many ways, he is. He has the same brain leakage and the same politics and much more money. But, you know, he just there's something he's lacking. I'm glad you bring up uh, Trump as a point of comparison, because I was going to say myself that uh, in terms of billionaires who have expressed their voice through Twitter, Trump is somebody who rarely told jokes but was often funny, and Musk is someone who was always joking but never funny. It's hard to understand what his sense of humor is, I, and, but the point nerd is not ed- his sense edgelord. of humor, I guess. Like, that's what it is, uh, is nerd edgelord. Like, somebody who 
thinks they're being controversial and, and cool, but no, you are the lamest person on the planet. I think it's worth pointing out because we haven't said it straight up. Like there are people, I'm sure there are people in the world who are, who have no opinion or are neutral on Elon Musk. Um, but the day he bought Twitter, Twitter had a huge increase in the use of banned language and slurs and all the bad things. That's what's coming. Like that's the moderation that they don't want. And they were testing that. So he's not a good guy. Like on top of not being funny, he's just honestly a terrible person. And it's worth saying, like, we can laugh at him all he wants, we want, but he is ultimately a very bad person. And I think this goes into a, a point we've uh, made before on Punching Out, which is that, is this the most efficient use of $44 billion? Like, if this money is out there in society, is this the way that that maximizes efficiency, which is ostensibly what capitalism does with resources. It allocates them most efficiently. I don't think there's a way to argue that's the case here. Instead, what we see is massive wealth being used to fund a vanity project, a vanity project that is coming at the expense of you know, thousands of people's jobs and millions of people's sanities. This is bad. It's not good. I don't like it. We're getting f- good jokes now, but like, in terms of the continuation of democracy, like I hate to say that democracy rests on Twitter's shoulders. Obviously, that's not the case, but it is a huge issue for discourse and, and the ability to say things freely. Like as a leftist, in fact, in reality, we face a much bigger threat of censorship than anybody ever on the right does. And the fact that we can basically say there's right-wing media, but there is no left-wing media at all whatsoever. Um, And that kind of dissonance and inability to accept the reality that actually is, I think that's the biggest problem. And all of this is that there is a second reality out there that everybody else believes in that has nothing to do with actual real life. And this is just another iteration of that. And, you know, if Musk gets his way, then the days before Election Day and Election Day in the United States will have Twitter as a site where nobody's really sure if the blue check means your real account, you're actually the person behind uh, the picture or the news outlet behind the picture. It, Twitter is not going to be a reliable place to get election updates in the way that it has been for me and a lot of other users in years past. Um, and we mentioned Facebook in the first segment. That is another site that is run increasingly into the ground by a billionaire with uh, probably some right-wing views and just a lack of social acumen, shall we say? Uh, Yeah, the vanity project that is meta and the metaverse. You know, our our social media sites are now exclusively run by these right-wing billionaires who 
uh, are using it for explicitly ideological aims. So Facebook famously was, you know, trying not to punish conservative politicians who broke its rules because it wanted some say with those politicians in Washington for whatever lobbying project it wanted done. And that's not a good place to be in any more than a world in which all the local media is run by Sinclair Broadcasting Group. And now that I've run out of creative ways to express this point, do we have anything positive to say in the last uh, three or four minutes? Uh, maybe Elon will go broke. <laughs> maybe <laughs> that it's is a fun thought. Long shot. Yeah, it's a good. Honest, that's the only positive thing I can honestly think about all this. There is, in theory, a world in which somebody comes up with a site that is suspiciously similar to Twitter tomorrow, and everybody just goes there instead, and Twitter becomes another Parler or Rumble or you know gab or another in a long series of right-wing social media attempts that haven't gotten any uh, foothold outside of the rightest of the right maybe maybe we can look forward to that i what's weird to me is that there are attempts to develop alternatives to twitter and all of them have flaws And generally speaking, people on Twitter spend all of their time talking about those flaws and then not realizing (laughs) that Twitter once upon a time, that's all we talked about there too. Like Twitter took... We we still talk about its flaws. Yeah. we, we, We call it the hell site and we constantly complain about it. And if what you really want is a the, – the problem is that Twitter became one space. It became a common space that can handle a lot of different functions. And I don't know if you can do that without all of the, like, frankly, quite shady stuff that tech does to allow that to happen. I don't know if that's a possibility. It could happen. Jack Dorsey is apparently already trying to create a whole new social network called Blue Sky – I don't know what that's going to look like, um, but Jack Dorsey, another weird guy. I'm, mm-hmm. Didn't he win a Genius Award? I feel like he won a Genius Probably. Award. I don't remember. Have we discussed his diet on the air? Because that's Genius Award stuff. Yeah. Genius Award for Nutritional Science. Today's episode is not the Genius Awards, though, and we are probably coming up on the end of our hour here. So, I, Noah, I know you had more to say, but... At, I think, as with so many Twitter posts in the past, we're going to have to cut this one short. Uh, For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at PunchingOutWayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.